Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, looking back on the week in the media and journalism here and around the world. My name's Jack Fisher, and tonight we're taking a look at the topic that's been dominating the news this week, the refugee crisis around the world. 60 million people were displaced around the world this year, and they've been making headlines in Europe and around the world this week. Meanwhile, the New York Times has taken the Australian government to task over our treatment of refugees. Later on in the show, I'm going to be speaking to the Australian man who, until very recently, was facing jail time in Thailand for his journalism. But joining me on the line right now, I have Ben Doherty, journalist with Guardian Australia. Hi, Ben. Uh, good evening, Jack. And Sarah White, until recently reporter with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and soon to be reporter with ABC 730. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Jack. Now, last week saw the publication of a series of devastating photos from Turkey, a young Kurdish boy from Syria dead on a beach outside a Turkish resort where he and his brother had been trying to cross to a Greek island in a small dinghy when they drowned. Now, it's resonated with news audiences all around the world, and for our leaders, it's put the issue of the Syrian refugee crisis right in the middle of domestic politics. But first to the pictures. There are many people who say these pictures of a dead child should never have been released, let alone on the front page of a newspaper, as the UK's Independent did. Ben, can I ask you, should this image have been published? Uh, yes, look, I, I think it should have. I, I appreciate that this is an, an incredibly sensitive topic and a difficult one, and, and pictures like that are very confronting. But, but that image is the truth of what is happening in this situation. And, and I think any attempt to shield that for reasons of, of, of sensitivity start to move towards self-censorship of, of, of what is, as you said in the introduction there, you know, one of the, 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 the great issues seizing the world at the moment. So I think it's important that, that, those issue, that those images are handled sensitively, but I do think they are very powerful and very important in, in demonstrating the reality of, of what is happening in this situation. I'm not convinced that this photo will necessarily be or lead to some sort of seismic shift in, in public opinion. That might be the case, but I also think that there have been over this European summer, a number of images which which have which has which have seemed to sort of capture public attention momentarily. I'm remembering the Greek policeman um, uh, uh, rescuing um, a woman on on the shores of an island. I'm remembering the the image of of uh, uh, an asylum seeker selling pens while he was holding his his sleeping baby daughter on a street. Those sort of images seem to seem to sort of puncture public consciousness, but then then quite quickly fade away again. Whether this whether this image, this this latest very very disturbing image, has any sort of longer term impact, I'm I'm not yet sure. I I think in the in the 21st century with social media and 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 the way that these images can be diffused and and spread so quickly, they sometimes become a bit more ephemeral and and perhaps lose their their seismic impact. Sarah, this image, I mean, the boy has family in Canada who would have definitely seen this image. It would have been incredibly distressing to them. Do you think it should have been published? Yeah, I, I also believe it should have been published because it's unfortunate that, that images like this do capture the public's attention and do make you realise, like, this little tiny lifeless boy. I mean, it's just so awful to look at. But as Ben was saying, this really does capture exactly what's what's happening in the issue. And having reported on immigration for a while for Fairfax, you really... As a journalist, you almost need those horrific images to capture people's, um, you know, just to see, you know, their attention and to make sure that they know this is actually what's happening. So without that picture, I really doubt we'd be having such a huge debate about it at the moment. It's really, it, I mean, children and death and, um, you know, war is just those kind of issues put all together are awful, but they also inspire people to write about it and to become very passionate about it. 
Indeed, we had the uh, Guardian's Middle East correspondent Martin Chulov on the show recently, telling us how the global interest in Syria had basically waned in the last few years as the coverage had been so bleak, or while the death toll has basically crept higher and I believe is now at 250,000. Ben, do you feel like audiences have been waiting for a sufficiently heartbreaking moment such as this in order to galvanise international action on Syria? Look, I don't know about... I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that characterisation, but I think what an image like this does is it humanises and personalises what is, to a lot of people, we're, we're sitting in Australia talking about this, a distant and difficult conflict to understand. When you start talking about a quarter of a million people dead, that sounds like a statistic from a history book almost, but when you see it in the image of this one boy on a beach, it, 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 the, the story moves from being about you know, an undifferentiated mass, an, an anonymous mass of people, and, and the language used around asylum seekers talks about waves and hordes and all of this sort of impersonal language, this dehumanised language. But when you see the image of this is a boy who had a family, who had a mother, who had relatives, brothers and sisters, these sort of things, that, that personalises this image and, and it makes it possible for people to relate to it. So I think to, to go to Whitey's point... Um, to go to Sarah's point, rather, the the image is, has has incredible power because it personalises what is and and what has been a, a sort of remote, almost uh, theoretical issue. It, it it makes it a reality and and makes it personal. Sarah, indeed, some have compared this image to the iconic napalm girl image from the Vietnam War. Do you mm. think one photo still in this day and age has the capacity to change policy or even the tide of a war? Uh, definitely. I definitely think we underestimate the value of photos all the time. And you see those, that kind of image and that soldier holding the boy. It was just, you know, it's such a, a tragic photo. Um, and we can write about it as much as we want as journalists and say the Syrian war has, you know, got another million people who have been affected by it. And write and write and write. Sometimes I felt like in the immigration space, I was standing in a forest screaming with my articles and no one was really taking much notice. So these kind of photos make you sit up. A lot of people would have children that age or have children, you know, are parents. Uh, I've got niece and nephews who are just like that, um, you know, these little tiny children. And it makes you suddenly connect and be like, wow, this is actually happening and this is how I feel about it and this is how I feel about the Syrian war. So, yes, definitely. I think in this day and age, photos even more so, you know, they say a photo tells a thousand words and that, that photo really did tell a thousand words, I think. There has been some backlash at how the public have received these photos. There's a blogger at the UK Spectator who declared showing a photo of a dead Syrian child isn't compassionate, in fact it's narcissistic, and that the widespread sharing of the picture made it more like a snuff photo for progressives, dead child porn they called it, designed not to start a serious debate about migration in the 21st century, but to elicit a self-satisfied feeling of sadness among Western observers. Ben, do you think all that could be true? I disagree entirely with that characterisation. I think... This is the truth of what's happening. Uh, journalism's ultimate aim is to reveal the truth to people, is to explain what's happening uh, to to its viewers and and readers, uh, readers and, and its audience. And and I think this picture is is part of what is a very difficult, very traumatic, and very tragic situation. I I think I think shielding people from from photos like this is shielding people from the truth. Sarah, do you think there's a point to be made about some of that very public sadness with which this picture has been received? Yes and no. I mean, we live in a world that is completely narcissistic. I mean, my Facebook feed is just full of people taking photos of themselves. I don't think, you know, to say where it's too narcissistic to share a picture of a Syrian boy who's died fleeing from a war, I, I kind of find that hard to believe when our world is heading more and more towards this narcissism. And I, I mean, I kind of thought about Cecil the Lion, you know, by having 
the lion named as Cecil. You know, there was this outpouring of grief that we saw as well last month. Um, and you, by kind of characterising the lion with a name, I was reading, you know, is this the downfall of media by by that going viral? But similarly with the, with the child, I, I definitely don't think it's narcissistic. I think there's a lot of other things we could talk about that's narcissistic in the media. You're on Fourth Estate. My name's Jack Fisher, and I'm speaking to Ben Doherty and Sarah White. And while it might feel like we don't often grab the world's headlines here in Australia, last week the New York Times made Australia the target in an editorial titled Australia's Brutal Treatment of Refugees, where it warned that some European officials might be tempted to adopt the hardline approach Australia has used to stem a similar tide of migrants, but that would be unconscionable. Ben, you've covered this topic closely and you've just returned, I believe, from Manus Island. Does the New York Times' description of affairs that our immigration detention is a purgatory for child sex abuse and unscrupulous private enterprise, does that reflect your experience? Look, I thought it was uh, it was a pretty solid and pretty accurate editorial. This is not the first time the NYP has editorialised in this direction and, and, and on this subject. I mean, language like purgatory and these sort of things, you can you can argue about as, uh, as being loaded. But certainly, I think... The, the the allegations um, around child sex abuse on Nauru, not not, uh, not on Manus. There are there are, there are no children on, on Manus anymore. But um, and and also the, um, uh, the 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 behaviour of the contractors and subcontractors on on Manus and Nauru. I, I mean, that's that I suppose has has been sort of fairly clearly laid out um, in in numerous articles in um, in lots of different uh, media and in uh, inquiries before the Senate and such things. So look, I do I do think that's that's a, a fairly um, accurate reflection. I I think the Border Force Act is a is a is, is a broad piece of legislation, but certainly one of its purposes, um, and this is quite a, a, a malevolent element of it and and quite deliberate in is that it is it is designed to keep what happens in these places secret, and it is designed to punish people who speak out. Um, there's absolutely no doubt that that there is a deliberate move to keep conditions in these places quiet and to stop information getting out about this. The New York Times editorial, it also makes mention of the fact that Nauru has raised the journalist visa fee from $200 to around $8,000 without the possibility of a refund if your application is not successful. Uh, Their economy in Nauru, of course, once powered by phosphate mining, it's taken a beating in recent decades. So I want to ask, Considering the money that they need, is this journalist's visa fee hike, is that a prima facie example of shutting out the media? I, I think that's undoubted. I mean, other visa c- categories haven't been um, increased in the same way um, and, and the increase didn't, uh, didn't coincide with, a, with a, a, a downturn in Nauru and economic fortunes. Rather, it, it, it coincided with media interest in what was going on in the detention centre. Um, there's absolutely no doubt, um, uh, to my mind, that, that that is a deliberate move to, to keep the media off the island and, and to avoid scrutiny. So what's it like for you travelling to Manus in terms of the access that you have as a journalist? Beyond just being a journalist, but for anybody, to get to Manus is difficult. It is a remote place and it is hard to get to. Um, in terms of getting to the detention centre, I, I made formal inquiries and, 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 and filled out the form that, that, that you're supposed to to... Uh, to, to gain access to the detention centre, um, and that request was just ignored. I got absolutely no response from from PNG officials on that, um, and and so getting access to to inside that detention centre is uh, for a journalist, I suppose, next to impossible. Um, there have been efforts to clamp down in terms of media, uh, in in terms of getting information out 
of that centre. Um, though they that's been achieved with sort of varying levels of success. But there's there's no doubt that that Manus's you know, remote location, the expense and the difficulty involved in getting there, the difficulty in getting visas and getting there, um, is all part of an effort to keep those areas out of scrutiny. There there is no there is no facilitation for for for, for media scrutiny of, of what happens in, in, in that detention centre. Even the fact that it's removed from Australian territory and put into the hands of another government, a government that it can be made a very strong argument is is largely beholden to Australia, um, is is another element of, of that move to keep what happens in those places secret. Sarah, back in June, you wrote that Australia's treatment of desperate refugees is giving us a reputation as a self-centred, uncaring nation. The New York Times editorial, they seem to think so, but many reader comments on their editorial defended the Australian system, saying Australia has one of the few sane policies on illegal immigration, their words. Do you think the New York Times are just out of touch? Uh, I don't think they're out of touch. I think there were two issues going on with the New York Times editorial. I mean, I, we wrote, we've, I've written extensively on the abuse and the sexual abuse and, and the conditions within the detention centres. But what it didn't address is the, the deaths at sea, which is what Tony Abbott's uh, mantra is almost. And we, we wouldn't see these kind of images coming into Australia because, you know, the boats have been turned around. Um, I, I don't think the New York Times was out of touch, but they didn't. I felt like it could have gone more into why the Abbott government has said that it's going to stop the boats, um, and it could have gone more into you know, the number of, of crossings and successful, you know, trying to make successful ventures into Australia. I, perhaps it could have even mentioned what happened under the Labor, like the different governments, and show the difference. But on the other hand, do you then sacrifice people's rights living on Manus or Nauru? Um, that seems incredibly. Well, yeah, I agree with the editorial in that point because these people are really suffering. Um, but I, I think they didn't really address how the boats have you know, technically stopped or how they've, they've stopped the flow of asylum seekers because we don't see those people dying at sea on their way to Australia at the moment. Now, Tony Abbott's been compelled to act on the uh, Syrian refugee crisis, and he's uh, this weekend defended Australia's refugee policy and saying that, well, we take more refugees than any other country through the UNHCR on a per capita basis, which is a fairly narrow definition of our generosity when you consider that the Abbott government reduced our humanitarian intake two years ago from 20,000 to 13,750. Turkey, Lebanon and Jordan have absorbed millions of Syrian refugees. So, Ben... Does it make more sense to you for us to be talking about Australia's refugee intake in terms of how many people we take or how many people we take for every one of us? I think the, the sort of calculation around the, the, the number of refugees being accepted needs to be, to, you know, needs to take into capacity of, of any country um, uh, in, in, in terms of, of wealth, in, in, in terms of um, uh, number of people and, and, and all of those sorts of things. I mean, Australia's resettlement program is one of the best in the world in terms of uh, resettlement through U- UNHCR channels and, 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 and we come third uh, in, in that, on, on the league table of that after the United States, which takes about 70% of all UNHCR resettlement and, and Canada, both of which have larger populations than us. But it needs to be remembered that that, that represents a tiny proportion, less than 1% of, of, of all the refugees in the world who are displaced. So it's, it's, uh, I think it's something like 86% of, of the world's refugees are hosted by developing countries, and that's places like Turkey, Pakistan and Lebanon. You know, a quarter of Lebanon's population is refugees. Um, they, they, these are huge imposts on, on countries that, in many cases, don't really have 
um, terrific capacity to deal with these massive in, influxes of people and influxes where people will stay for a very, very long time. You look at the situation on the, on the Pakistan border, you have Afghans living there who've been there for 30 years, who've been displaced for, for, by 30 years of war from Afghanistan. So Australia's capacity to, to take more is, is undoubted, I, I think. Um, and, and the Houston report from three years ago now said that, that, that Australia could immediately increase its intake to 27,000. Thank you both for joining me, Ben Doherty and Sarah White. Now to the Australian man who has just escaped jail time in Thailand. Until they were acquitted last week, Alan Morrison and his colleague Chutamo Siddhasathian were facing jail time over a Reuters story that they republished, just one sentence of, about the Thai Navy's treatment of Rohingya refugees. Now they were charged for, for defamation and under a section of Thailand's Computer Crimes Act. I spoke with Alan and Chutamo about their court victory earlier. My name's Alan Morrison and this is my colleague Chutamo Siddhasathian. And we're basically the, the full-time staff of uh, Phuket One, which is an online news magazine produced out of Phuket in Thailand. Uh, we've been going for about eight years now. And back in 2009, we stumbled on the biggest story of our careers in terms of the pushbacks of boatloads of refugees from Thailand by the military. So ever since then, we've kind of been covering the story of the Rohingya uh, leaving Burma and sailing south, looking for sanctuary in Malaysia. And, Indeed. And um, we worked with the South China Morning Post in giving that particular story wider publicity internationally. Uh, and uh, we've been covering what's been happening off the coast of Thailand and inside Thailand in terms of human trafficking uh, ever since, as well as other things. Um, tourism safety was what we were all about at the start and it still is a very important part of what we do, along with corruption. So, um, yeah, we were going okay, we thought, until we were sued by the Royal Thai Navy in 2013. Now, the interesting thing about how you guys got in trouble was it was just a mere sentence that you'd republished from, I believe, a Reuters report, and yet Reuters haven't experienced any of the same trouble that you have. What do you make of the discrepancy there? Oh, look, it's, it's, uh, it's a complicated part of a complicated story. Uh, the article we were sued over um, was actually uh, a collection of excerpts from a Reuters account uh, Kun Chudema worked with Reuters on two occasions as a fixer and gave them access to her contacts built up over many years, as she has done with the New York Times, BBC and many other international organisations. And then when Reuters published their feature covering the issue, we excerpted from it, took the news out of the, the feature and, and ran our own story. And in that story, there was one particular paragraph that we quoted word for word from Reuters, and that was the paragraph that got us sued. So we were sued over a 41-word Reuters paragraph, um, and we understand that at some stage the police intended to sue Reuters, but backed away and, and didn't sue Reuters. So we were the only ones who were sued, even though Thai language media also carried the same information. Um, so we think... Um, somebody was out to get us and we think one or two navy officers 
acting on the wrong information um, pursued us uh, as part of a vendetta. Um, and uh, what disappointed us was the fact that although we were sued over the Reuters paragraph, Reuters showed no interest in defending its paragraph. And oddly enough, just a few months later, Reuters won the Pulitzer Prize for its coverage of, this, of the Rohingya issue, including the article that we excerpted from. So, Does that feel like a bit of a slap in the face from Reuters? Well, we, the site Phuket One is basically run on my life savings. So at the time we were sued, we were talking about kind of closing the site and doing something else. And so because we were sued, we thought media freedom was worth fighting for. And we fought on for 20 months defending Reuters Paragraph without any of their help. And it's cost me somewhere between 60,000 and 100,000 Australian dollars to defend Reuters Paragraph. Um, but right from the start, they kind of distanced them, themselves from their paragraph. So we've actually defended Reuters and won, and Reuters has had nothing to do with it. So is there a broader lesson there, I suppose, about smaller publishers like your own and whether they're getting the support they deserve from bigger players like Reuters? It's interesting because uh, some people see Phuket One as, as the future that journalism is going to take. Um, much smaller outlets, uh, perhaps concentrating on, on, on defined areas. Um, I mean, our case brought together the issue of the stateless Rohingya and their treatment and the Bangladeshis who are now coming south with them and also media freedom in Thailand. Um, but it actually extends beyond Thailand because um, these kinds of draconian laws could be used by any government that wanted to repress its media. And had the Navy won, one wonders what other governments looking to contain their media would have thought and whether they might have picked up these laws. I mean, basically we were facing seven years in jail, uh, two years for criminal defamation and five years under a hideous law called the Computer Crimes Act. Um, and during those 20 months, we were quite regularly asked to apologise if we'd apologised, the criminal defamation part of the action would have gone away, but the Computer Crimes Act is so draconian that it had to go to court as a matter of necessity. So what we were being asked to do was to plead guilty, to say we were sorry, and of course that would have reflected in the sentence we eventually got in court. So we couldn't see any reason to say sorry for somebody else's words, and we didn't. And of course the ramifications of republishing someone else's words are very broad. I mean, hundreds of news agencies, news agencies around the, the world publish Reuters words as a matter of course every day. Yeah. How does that feel to put your freedom on the line for the sake of press freedom? Uh, it was pretty nerve-wracking. I mean, to a certain extent, if there hadn't been two of us, I think it would have been much more alarming. And I certainly had the chance to flee and leave my colleague to face her fate, um, or we could have both left, really. I mean, my colleague had her passport retained. Mine was taken by the courts because they feared I might be a flight risk. But I did get it back to visit Australia in February. And, you know, lots of friends and, and relatives at the time said, are you sure you want to go back? How did you feel, Chidema? Did you feel like it was worth it, putting your freedom on the line here? Oh, 
after the verdict, there is quite a big release after we've been a struggle for for two years. And they are in the past, uh, I didn't get any support from the Reuters. Um, they just uh, respond the, the question that I am uh, really limit on uh, the law, limit in the uh, Reuters. I just arrestment people. Actually, Reuters, they're having the um, Thai producer, but they could not able to use their Thai staff working on this issue. To me, you know, very disappointed. I made appointment with them to talking with the uh, smuggling people, the broker people, with the Rohingya and the uh, Thai authority as well. So to me, it's really unfair to say like that. They could, even in these days, you know, they still unsupport me. So it's sad to say, but in the same time, I'm really happy that they bring the, uh, the Rohingya issue become international story. Yeah, we had no, no problems at all with Reuters journalism, yeah. but the corporate approach to our case was just appalling. And to have Kun Chudema give them the benefit of her years of research and then to be dismissed in such a fashion is just appalling. Um, I mean, it's as though they, they were concerned that somebody else might share their Pulitzer glory. Um, we really don't care. Uh, we think that Getting the word out there is very important, which is why we've worked with so many international organisations to get the story covered properly. And none of those other interna international organisations has had anything but praise for Kunchudema's work. Now, you've just been acquitted. Do you feel free to go back and do the reporting that you were doing? Uh, we're hoping we can continue. Um, but the problem is that in the 20 months, our advertising base has disappeared. So it's costing us more at a personal level. Um, and, and two years ago, we were talking about whether we could sustain the site. So, you know, it's, uh, it's been a long, hard fight. We've done it the best we could and we've won. Um, but whether we can continue with Phuket One remains to be seen. We'll decide within the next few days, probably. And as for the Thai people who've witnessed your case, firstly, how do they feel about that draconian Computer Crimes Act that you talk about? Um, they are very pleased. This is uh, that the outcome of the Computer Crime Act being thrown out by the judge from the Thai judge, because this is the first case that has been clear cut that defamation not able to use with the Computer Crime Act. In this day, many Thai people they've been using the uh, uh, defamation with the computer crime, like suing of each other via Twitter, Facebook, or social media. So this is a, a, another good step for Thailand. That's Alan Morrison and Chutama Siddhasathian from the Thai media outlet Phuket One. Speaking on the defamation charges that nearly saw them go to jail, they'll be celebrating their court victory right now, I'm sure. Don't forget you can find the Fourth Estate podcast on 2SCR.com and iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. My name's Jack Fisher, and you can catch us at the same time next week. Mm-hmm.